Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. It is the Ides of March, Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Christine's colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Washington commentary columnist Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Matt, Christine, and I all have pieces in the April issue of commentary now available for your perusal at commentary.org if you are a subscriber to Commentary Magazine, which you should, of course, be if you are listening to this podcast. Christine, um, Christine's piece goes into the uh, attack on the New York Times from within the New York Times for the ast- on the astonishing charge that the New York Times is hostile to trans people and transgender ideology, which is a little like calling is uh, commentary anti-Zionist. Uh, and, uh, and which then brings me to my piece, which is an uh, an effort to explain what is going on in Israel with these protests, continuing protests against the new government. And Matt has a piece called The Unity That Won't Last about how there is a weird outbreak. You wouldn't really know this necessarily from the way social media covers it, but there's been a weird outbreak of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill in the new Congress that uh, is interesting, but will probably not not last and he goes into explaining why it won't last so those are our pieces the 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 centerpiece of the issue is an extraordinary article by gary saul morrison a professor of russian literature at a northwestern university uh called do russians worship war and the piece is an effort to explain putin and russia's behavior toward ukraine through the lens of Russia's historic relationship to war as the binding glue of its national identity dating back eight centuries. So uh, it gives you a sense of the implacability uh, and the uh, national myth that is keeping Putin going. It is an extraordinarily illuminating piece. I commend it to your attention. Also, a fascinating piece by Ruel Markerecht and Ray Takea on how there may be a division growing inside Iran between the malocracy and the clerics, the Shiite, the Shiite clerics, who are, you know, it's um, what would you call them? Sort of like they're almost like they're Talmudic leaders, uh, and how the clerics seem to be increasingly siding with the protesters in Iran. And so that is something very much to pay attention to. So that's just some of the glories of the April issue of Commentary at Commentary.org. And uh, let us now move on to the news of the day, uh, which is this uh, confrontation between two Russian uh, aircraft uh, and an unmanned American drone over the Black Sea. Matt, you uh, you want to get us up to speed? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think this is the... Lead story of the day, uh, it happened around uh, 7 a.m. local time, Ukraine time, uh, over the Black Sea, uh, and America is operating uh, one of our Reaper drones uh, in international waters, and when it was uh, engaged uh, by two um, uh, two Russian planes, um, I think they're 
looking up the designation anyway two russian planes um and the jets uh began basically harassing the drone they were dumping fuel on the drone uh they were flying very close to the drone eventually one actually collided with our drone and the american drone operators who of course are not there since it's an unmanned vehicle uh were forced to crash the drone into the black sea because the situation was getting so out of hand so this has sparked an international incident america summoned the russian ambassador uh to the state department uh to give the the ambassador a dressing down about um their aggressive tactics um we're trying to recover the drone obviously drone technology is very sophisticated you don't want it necessarily in the russians hands um the dr- drone apparently went down near snake island if you recall from the beginning of the war that that was the place where the uh ukrainians told the russians who were in- invading snake island go to hell um russians took over the island then ukraine has taken it back so that might help us get the drone but i think the bottom line of this story is it shows the um a few things the first is the nature of the russian regime which is that they're pushing constantly this is international waters you know uh the <laughs> the russian statement was hilarious they said it you know our drone cr- crossed a temporary border well I-, I guess that you know any day is a temporary border you could draw a line whatever but it's just temporary it's just where the drone crosses it um no we were operating in international waters the russians were being aggressive unfortunately we don't have maverick from the top gun movies to kind of engage the the migs and, and give them the bird um, upside down and but we may them. have i mean the you know i don't know how the uh the reaper operator did that but perhaps we did but i think finally the the, the lesson here is um the wars are dynamic they begin in a certain situation they turn into something else Stephen Kotkin, the historian, likes to say every war begins as a war of maneuver with the two forces kind of battling and moving. And um, But then it, it either ends with uh, an occupation or a, a war of attrition. Right now, it seems like we're in the war of attrition stage in Ukraine, but that could change very rapidly. And I think it only underscores the importance of um, American uh, leadership here and American uh, moral clarity in view of who is actually the aggressor in this war. And it's not Ukraine, which is something that Republicans seem in danger of forgetting. There's also, I, I we should add too, that this is actually these, uh, what are they, the the jets, the SU, they're like SU-27, you know, these, these Russian jets. This has been going on off and on with these jets and our our not only our um, Reaper drones, but our general Navy surveillance uh, stuff that we put up there. They've been having these incursions. There was one in 2018. We don't even see reports of all of the ones that happen, obviously. But the, this is a kind of regular harassment, uh, a level of harassment that the Russians uh, do. I think Matt's right, though, that this has a little more um, serious implication given, given the kind of uncertainty and testing that's going on right now with Putin in the West. So that is that does make this, um, interestingly, should be as big a story as the Chinese surveillance balloon was. But I'll be curious to see how the uh, Biden administration addresses this, if they say anything at all, or if this just goes away in the news cycle, because it's an an inconvenient uh, action that's happened here. And speaking of the Chinese surveillance balloon, China does this with us, too, uh, over the South China Seas a lot. Uh, and has also been getting increasingly uh, aggressive. So it's not terribly surprising to see that China and Russia are both sort of sharing this this harassment tactic. 
Okay, so uh, I'm now going to predict the apologias that are about to start in, I would say, 10, 9, 8, 7. So here's the apologia. Uh, it's very similar to the apologia for Russia's behavior in Ukraine. It's the Black Sea. Sure, you can call it international waters, but really the Black Sea is sort of like Russia's Lake Michigan. Although Lake Michigan, in fact, goes into Canada. So maybe that's the that's a bad example. It's like their Lake Huron. It's really a Russian lake. It's not even really a sea. And they think of it that way. And therefore, we should be cognizant of the fact that they feel this ancient historic personal connection to the Black Sea as a as something that is within Russian sovereignty, kind of like Ukraine. And we are testing them by flying drones over the Black Sea. Why are we doing that when we should be focusing all our attention on China? And instead, we're flying drones over the Black Sea. Why are we being so provocative? Russia's already made it clear that they believe the Black Sea is their personal vassal lake. And we're just stirring the pot. We're stirring the pot. You should apply to be the Russian ambassador uh, to the United States, John, because that's or, or, exactly or a commentator what... on Tucker Carlson. Right. Tonight, yeah, because, I but... think is really that might be more <laughs> lucrative for me. Yeah. Hard to distinguish sometimes. Uh, the um, Just one quick note. I pulled out the schematics. Uh, Christine is right there. SU-27s. Got the blueprints right here. Sorry that we were <laughs> confused about that. SU-27s. No, uh, John, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the line from Moscow, actually, the ambassador said, look, how would America feel if uh, we were operating the drones next to San Francisco, right? Um, and, of course, America would feel bad. The difference is in you know the purpose of the mission and the circumstances uh, on the ground in Ukraine uh, at the moment, um, that's where you have to make distinctions. Um, I, 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 and you notice the split already, and I think it's interesting. I mean, we had uh, yesterday's show. We talked about Ron DeSantis, uh, Governor of Florida, coming out with the statement saying that the uh, the territorial dispute, his words, between Russia and Ukraine, is not in the America uh, American interest, vital interest. And uh, some of that rhetoric was echoed by uh, Congressman Matt Gates. Uh, yesterday in the aftermath of the drone incident where um, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, kind of a big star in the MAGA firmament, uh, said this just shows, look, we're eventually, uh, we have to, he said, we have to stop aiding Ukraine now until it's not drones that are falling, but American soldiers. In order to prevent American soldiers from, from dying in Ukraine, we need to stop all aid now. On the other hand, though, you had comments from Senator Roger Wicker, and uh, comments from Mike McCall, uh, the congressman in the House, uh, which are which more kind of what we would think of as Republican national security statements saying this just shows aggressive, Russia's aggressive intent and is all the more reason that we need to be on guard, try to reestablish deterrence against them by providing Ukraine everything it needs. Uh, this is the debate that's taking place in the in the Republican Party right now. It's much more vocal debate. Uh, than is happening on the Democratic side. And it is interesting that the Biden administration, it seems if you read through the line and some of this coverage, wants to kind of play down the drone incident, um, pro probably precisely because they, they don't want to get into a situation where we are uh, America is directly engaged with Russia.
Can we uh, just note some of the the pushback on um, DeSantis uh, from yesterday? Uh, since Matt's talking about the debate among Republicans, um, people, all sorts of people, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, um, uh, forgetting names, but Haley, were, yeah, for sure, Cor- Cornyn, yeah, yeah, Cornyn, that's right, uh, pu- pushing back Mark, on Mark, Le- Mark Levin. Yeah, pushing back on um, DeSantis's comment about uh, the the war being a territorial dispute that's not in our interests. Um, I think it's interesting because, uh, first of all, I was surprised by how many people had pushed back. So it was heartening. And I think part of where, where he went wrong, DeSantis, is that it's the it's the kind of um, sentiment you could you could pro- pro- express and get away with on the right if you don't intellectualize it too much. If you just say this is all garbage and we don't need it and we got people starving here or whatever or people on on, on fentanyl here uh, and and don't try to sort of you know put put intellectual meat on the bones. He did that and it 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 all it all sort of turned to dust. Um, what happened yesterday? And the rhetoric that DeSantis used, the less noted rhetoric in his statement to the Tucker Carlson questionnaire, had to do with the idea that we need to do whatever we can to prevent there from being a direct engagement of American forces with Russia, like boots on the ground. Matt Gates kind of saying the same thing. This is an echo of a speech that Josh Hawley gave three weeks ago at the Heritage Foundation. Um. And of course, there is a logical, there is a horrible logical inconsistency in these views, which is if you don't want American boots on the ground, if you don't want there to be a moment at which either uh, there's a huge stalemate and then Russia essentially begins to grind its way forward into Ukraine because you, you the Ukrainians kind of run out of people and material and weapons. And that is the sort of the long-term risk here that Russia's all in read Gary Saul Morrison's piece on why Russia would remain all in. And that, uh, there will be a moment of choosing at some point in the future, not this year, maybe not next year, where the question is, is Russia going to be allowed to win? And if Russia is going to be allowed to win, then Russia will be allowed to win. And the consequences could be just globally catastrophic or, is that when NATO has to go in and NATO means us. And so when we say, give them the F 16s, when we say, give them more material, when we say, you know, uh, advance the support efforts as opposed to letting them continue at this peculiarly leisurely pace, our view is the view that will keep American forces more like the most likely way to keep American forces or NATO forces out of the direct conflict is to give the Ukrainians what they need now to, to break the Russian will, which is going to be very hard as the, again, Gary Saul Morrison piece dictates DeSantis and these people and DeSantis doesn't go as far as Hawley. Hawley says, cut off Ukraine now so we can focus all of our attention on China. And that is not what DeSantis says. DeSantis's view is much more convoluted. But it doesn't make sense because the idea is all we're doing with Ukraine, and I know it sounds like we're saying all, oh, we spent $100 billion. Well, all we're doing with Ukraine is giving them materials and training. 
We're not on the ground. We don't have boots on the ground. We're not involved. NATO is not involved. It is more likely that NATO gets involved if we if if this is where we are, but we're not actually going to expand the tools that we give them to beat the Russians back. And that's where the statement is the DeSantis statement, I think, was is bizarrely um situational and unprincipled. Because it's one thing to say, as Hawley says, get out of Ukraine. I think it's stupid and it is irrational. And in fact, it's self-defeating if what you want to do is confront China. But I suppose there is a logic to it. We don't want to be involved here anymore. It's not helping us. We need to focus all our attention over here. So DeSantis is essentially endorsing, Matt said this the other day, Biden's approach, which is give him stuff. It's not really in our national... Give them stuff. Don't give them too much stuff. Don't give them any stuff that could actually turn the war toward Ukraine's advantage. Give them enough stuff so that this becomes... It, this is like the sum. And we're just there for three... You know, this is this is a trench in World War One, and they're basically just grinding each other down. Yeah, and I think uh, when you read the statement closely, the the kind of invisible ink begins to appear. And if you're reading it from, say, a Holly perspective or a Matt Gates perspective, you're not going to be entirely satisfied with it for exactly the reason you point out. I mean, he's not saying he's saying don't give them the F-16s and the attackums, the long range uh, uh, munitions. But what he's not saying is maybe you can keep giving them everything else. He's not he doesn't mention tanks in there. And so the statement has the weird consequence of uh, not satisfying anyone. Hawks in the Republican Party who want to give Ukraine everything it needs in order to lead to some type of breakthrough that would force some type of negotiations or a uh, armistice aren't satisfied with it. But the true believers that somehow Ukraine is the problem here and not Russia, they aren't satisfied with it either, which I think raises the question, uh, why did he give this answer at all? He didn't need to. He's Ron DeSantis. He's in second place in most polls. In the couple recent polls, he's in first place in terms of establishment support up to this point and fundraising. He's basically the front runner. Trump is slightly the underdog in the sense that most party elites don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee next year. So couldn't Ron DeSantis, who has such a great relationship to Tucker Carlson, have called Tucker up and said, look, you know, I'm going to take a pass on this. Uh, It's not really my priority. When I have a policy, uh, you will be the first to know and I'll outline it. Instead, he felt like he, the DeSantis needed to say this. And Abe is exactly right. It's his position. The the position of, uh, you know, get away, Ukraine. I don't want to look at Europe. Europe is dirty. Europe is bad. I want to focus all on China. Or, you know, uh, why are we protecting Ukraine's borders when we need to protect our southern border? That position actually becomes weaker the more you theorize it. And that's exactly what he DeSantis did in this response. This was the written exam. This was the written exam with open notes. I just gave a written exam with open notes uh, in, to the one of the courses I teach. The students did pretty well because they have their notes. DeSantis did not do well. 
on this open note exam. And it's, he's starting to take flack from a variety of um, figures and institutions. I mean, unmentioned in our list, Dave, was the New York Post, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which has been very supportive of DeSantis and has three pieces today criticizing his position. Okay, well, and especially so, if he's oh, going to run, if he's going to, uh, just to add to that, especially if as some rumors are swirling that he's going to formally announce in May, there really was no strategic advantage to putting anything on the record right now. What he should be doing is just going around having a love fest over his book, which is what he's been doing. I mean, he can do that in Iowa. He can do that in New Hampshire. can go all over to these important early primary states and do that. But putting that on the record suggests a, a little bit of uh, undisciplined panic on the part of his his would-be campaign. So I think there is an answer buried in in his uh, the long the longer answer to Tucker, not the stuff that you know people have been quoting, um, which is um, he makes this reference to how he is standing foursquare against the globalist foreign policy interventionists who want regime change in Russia. Now, in point of fact, so many keywords. <laughs> But in point of fact, the person who who went to regime change in Russia as an approach in this war, there is one person who did this, and that is Joe Biden. And that was in March, it was April, maybe March or April of 2023, when he had that kind of old man yells at cloud outburst where he said, he's got to get out of there. He can't be there. He shouldn't be meaning Putin. You will note that first of all, he has never said anything remotely comparable to that. Again, it was a weird, you know, id mistake on his part. He shouldn't have said it. He was, he was sorry that he said it and he went, nobody else has echoed this. DeSantis would have been well within his rights to say, I'm very worried. I'm not Joe Biden wandering around recklessly calling for regime change with Russia. Like, don't look at me there. I that is Joe Biden being an idiot and a senile person, which would be a perfectly fine way to handle this matter. He wanted to go after people like us. He wanted to include in his indictment or whoever wrote this. And Nate Hockman, I'm looking at you. He wanted to point a finger broader than the finger that would be, could have been justly pointed at Biden for this incredible thing that Biden said. And that's what gives the game away. That the DeSantis people, and I don't know whether this is DeSantis himself or the DeSantis people, want to include in their indictment, following in Trump's footsteps, a bunch of Republicans. And that, I think, is politically stupid. And I just want to quickly explain why. DeSantis is the fusionist consensus candidate for 2024. The idea, in my view, being that what he represents is the non-Trump vote, and the non-Trump vote is very spread out. And the Trump vote is very concentrated, like the Trump passion vote. And if you're a fusionist candidate, go after the other guy. Go go at Biden. Go at Biden's jugular. And then you have to go at Trump because Trump is holding on to this, you know, this, this, this uh, group of people 
who will, will be with him regardless of what he says. If he suddenly turned hawkish on, on Ukraine, they would still support him. You know, they support him if he's a socialist. They support him if he's not a socialist. They support him on everything. It doesn't matter. DeSantis is trying to play in the, I'm going to destroy the Republican Washington establishment and eat their lunch just like you like with Trump. And that's not the logic of his Vic. That's not the logic that will make him secure victory in the Republican primaries. Because as Matt says, if you want Trump light, you could just have Trump. What do you need light for? I suppose you could drink Miller light rather than Miller. But maybe if what you actually want to do is get drunk, you're going to drink the Miller and not the Miller light. Um, You know, Trump is right there. He's Trump's in Iowa. He's at the machine shed. He's holding pies with ladies and taking pictures with them. Um, We're back to 2015 when Trump seemed to be having fun. On the, uh, on, on the trail. Um, I, John, you're absolutely right. That's the logic uh, that we see in a DeSantis candidacy. It's becoming increasingly clear to me over the past few months. That's not the logic that Ron DeSantis sees in his candidacy. And the logic, it seems to me, of this statement and, you know, and some of the other things he said on the trail or the fact that he doesn't engage with media outside of Fox News is that he's he seems to think his path to the nomination uh, goes through the very online right. And the the parts of the statement that you quoted there, I mean, that is just classic online right stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we also note that that uh, online right is associated with uh, institutions such as the Claremont Institute and um, DeSantis is very close with them. And remember, of course, DeSantis was one of the founding members of the House Freedom Caucus. <laughs> Right. So I think that part of his personality is more and more apparent. Um, And the the question is, uh, how does that get him to the nomination? Because uh, one, the just to, to break it down a little bit, you know, there's a divide in the Republican Party between somewhat conservatives and very conservatives. The 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 candidate who wins the somewhat conservative Republicans wins the nomination. The candidate who wins the very conservative Republicans comes in second place, right? So in 2016, just briefly, Donald Trump won those uh, somewhat conservatives. He also actually won moderate Republicans. Uh, Ted Cruz was the candidate of the very conservatives, and he came in second. Right now, DeSantis seems to be aiming to become the candidate of the very conservatives, which is exactly the wrong way to win a Republican nomination. He's benefiting from what I think people are projecting onto him now. And that explains his poll positions, which is somewhat conservatives want to be for DeSantis because they they want to get past Trump. But the more that they have to uh, engage with positions such as DeSantis revealed yesterday on Ukraine, I, I think those somewhat conservatives are going to drift away either to another candidate or again, with the Miller versus Miller light taste test, they're going to say, well, you know, why not get drunk? <laughs> With the real thing or or I mean, I think the the ones who aren't all in will uh, they'll it'll be a repeat of 2016 primary. Right. They'll all split. They'll split amongst the non DeSantis or non Trump candidates. And this always benefits Trump. The polling of Republicans. Well, I just there's a for DeSantis in particular, there's an additional problem with going this route. And it's already reared its head, which is that he has a record of being on the opposite side of this of this question and similar questions 
um, and they could they could throw it in his face every time. So it's aside from it being a, a, a bad strategy on its own merits, he's the wrong person to do it. Um, it, it, it just exposes a weakness in him, uh, no, no matter which side of the question you're on, because because now he's 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 covered both sides. And, and it, so I'm curious to see going forward if they treat this as a misstep or a slight miss, if they try to kind of massage it um, or if they double down. Polling of Republicans suggests that while Republicans say that we're committing too much, too many resources to the war in Ukraine, and that's basically like a 60-40 matter, majorities of Republicans support Ukraine over Russia. Again, close to 60-40. It's not that they want Russia to win or that they like Russia or that they're in favor of Russia. They still remain supportive of the Ukrainian effort to save their country from being swallowed up by Russia, which means that that number of that support is malleable. It's changeable because there is sympathy for the cause but there are very few voices on the right that are expressing or are, are laying out the reasons why this is in the national interest that aren't Biden's reasons for being in the national interest. And they're pretty much what we've laid out, which is <clears throat> you're doing it here to prevent us having the infinitely more dangerous problem of confronting China directly if it tries to move on Taiwan. Which apparently is also, that's like an 80-20 Republican issue. Republicans are very anti-China. And uh, therefore, this was a possibility for DeSantis to seize a moment of leadership. And a friend of mine texted me last night and saying, if Trump were really smart, uh, and he's not smart in this way, he's got animal cunning, but he would come at DeSantis now from the right and say... This was a sort of lily-livered approach. He's not a leader. He doesn't know how to lead. You know, if I were president, Putin would never have gone into Ukraine. And if and if DeSantis is president, given this kind of thing, they sounds like Biden and he does it, he does this, he does blah, blah, blah. Like, he's not going to stop the bad guys the way I could stop the bad guys. Now, I don't think Trump can do that, but it's kind of, once you hear it laid out, but vote and voters, this is really important to remember when governors run for president, that foreign policy is the thing they really have to answer to and for to the American people again and again, because that is the one huge deficit in their resumes uh, almost, and almost always. And they almost always stumble this early on, too. Um, so he actually needs to perhaps he'll learn from this experience and, and figure out a more coherent view. But I, I really think that, I mean, the overall impression I got from this whole debacle with with his Ukraine statement to Tucker is he doesn't actually have a clear position. He doesn't have a kind of broad foreign policy vision that he he will sell to the American people if he decides to run for president. And that's worrisome. It's still early. He can still work on that. But it, but it was curious to me that someone who's got extremely honed messaging on a lot of things like the COVID response on, you know, woke stuff, he's he's honed very sharply some of his domestic policy messages. This was kind of a flail. Okay, let, let me uh, take a minute to talk to you guys about our advertiser, Bambi. Once again, you we all know what it's like if, if you work in a small business, what it's like when you have to deal with complicated matters relating 
to your staff and your HR problems? How do people go come back to work physically in the office after, you know, after uh, years of being able to do split time or mostly staying at home? What do you do if the personal hygiene of somebody in your office is bad and others are complaining? What do you do about absences, latenesses, and things like that? Bambi offers you a, a an HR manager by phone, real uh, chat, real-time chat, email, whatever, for starting at $99 a month rather than the $80,000 a year salary that you expect to pay. You should expect to pay an HR manager who is your full-time on-site employee. Bambi offers you uh, methods and ways to uh, follow regulations, HR regulations in all 50 states, in your own state and everywhere else. Uh, it is a really terrific service. And uh, please go to Bambi.com and you type in Commentary Magazine where it says podcast because that will really help the show. <laughs> Do that so you can schedule your um, consultation first meeting with them to see if this is something you want to pursue. That's B-A-M-B-E-E.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. We thank Bambi for sponsoring the Commentary Podcast. Um, okay, so... <sighs> Uh, Matt, we haven't talked about this, uh, since it really exploded, um, over the weekend or Friday, uh, this, um, absolutely horrifying scene at the Stanford law school, which invited, uh, a fifth circuit, uh, judge, uh, Duncan, uh, to come speak to the Stanford law school. Uh, he was, uh, confronted by protesters because I guess he's a Trump judge appointed by Trump. Uh, and uh, rather than, uh, and then he was virulently and personally attacked uh, during his presentation by the school's diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, uh, whose name I don't even understand how to pronounce her first name, Tyrion Steinbach, Tyrion, Tyrion, Tyrion. Um, and unfortunately for her, uh, uh, video was taken of her uh, abusing this person who was invited, August person who was invited to speak before Stanford Law School, in which she took on the role of explaining why he was a terrible monster who should, you know, who should basically be crushed like a grape, um, causing an outcry, causing the dean of Stanford Law School to apologize <laughs> to Judge Duncan which then led a third of the Stanford Law School's members on uh, Monday to dress in black and abuse the dean of Stanford Law School as she walked down the corridors of Stanford Law School. Um, then the Stanford Law School wanted to explain to members, conservatives, members of the Federalist Society and others, how exactly uh, this was going to you know how they how how to help them deal with their trauma and suggested that one of the people that they should talk to is DEI coordinator Tyrion Steinbach <laughs> who would help them deal with their feelings she'll help them do the work by so, lecturing them yes on their racism sexism yes. classism um in the larger sense my hope would be 
that this will have long-term ramifications as such, which is, I don't care if you're a liberal judge. I don't care if you're a conservative judge. I don't care if you're a liberal law firm. Do not hire somebody from the current crop of people who are currently students at the Stanford Law School. You are inviting into your law firm or into your uh, chambers uh, people who believe that it is their right and power to disrupt and uh, destroy and uh, confront and uh, disrupt the normal order of business. And prudence should dictate that right now having a Stanford Law School degree is a path to the unemployment office. And in many cases, it will be. Uh, much of the federal judiciary uh, is conservative and ain't nobody getting a job out of Stanford Law School in a conservative's chambers unless they're like people who explicitly protested what happened to Judge Duncan. Um, but I suppose that's wishful thinking. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Well, the list of uh, elite law schools from which these judges can hire is shrinking because the incident at Stanford comes off of an incident at Yale uh, last year uh, or earlier this year. Uh, time is a flat circle, which um, which is very similar, um, where a, 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 another speaker was shouted down, um, deplatformed, as they say. And a couple of things. I mean, one, the... Um, uh, the atmospherics of this are, are extremely dis disturbing and, you know, uh, redolent of uh, the rise of fascist movements uh, in Europe in the 1930s, where um, uh, people dressed all in black like these protesters against the dean would uh, terrorize uh, academics and visitors to the university who did not follow their line. I mean, this is, uh, Alan Bloom discusses this in the closing of the American mind. Um, the second thing is the, um, the, the irony, or maybe it's an irony, it, of that if the first protest, okay, against the judge had gone the same way as the second protest against the dean, a lot of the controversy would have been avoided because the second protest against the dean was a silent protest they just stood and they stared at her menacingly, which is disturbing on its own. But in the context of these speaking engagements, if they had just done that to the judge, he would have been allowed to continue. He wanted to continue until the disruptions became too great that he just couldn't. You know, they, they literally shouted him down. Um, and finally, the role of the dean of the diversity coordinator, the diversity dean in this needs to be examined and she should not have a job. Okay, because, you know, fine, you want to be on campus and you're paid, uh, you know, multiple six figures to ensure diversity, equity, inclusion. Just maybe, I don't know, throw us a bone here and pretend that inclusion means uh, viewpoint diversity. Maybe just in this context, like, don't get up there and lecture this accomplished legal mind on the harm that he has supposedly done to minority communities. Uh, just, you know, don't go. Uh, but the fact that she now takes her job to mean that she is going to exclude viewpoints that make her uncomfortable 
I think is disqualifying. But this is what's interesting, right? The more transparency we get about these DEI bureaucrats on college campuses, the better it is for the people who want to push back against DEI. There was a little mini scandal at Vanderbilt uh, a couple months ago because two DEI uh, uh, folks, again, probably earn each earning six figures um, and spending your kids to it. All that money you send for your kids' college tuition or paying these people couldn't be bothered to to draft an email in their own words. They had to use like, you know, chat GPT to, to kind of formulate an email expressing sympathy for some gun violence in another state. So they, they these folks, it, when they're even doing whatever their job is, are phoning it in. And the ones who are doing their job vigorously, as this woman was, are revealing themselves to have a very particular ideological mission, which does not include free speech. So that I, I actually would love to see more examples of transparency on the part of the bureaucrats who are enforcing and enabling, enforcing these rules and against people who want to who want to uh, reflect viewpoint diversity. And enabling these students to get away with this kind of nonsense. Okay, but I, I want to associate myself with Bill Jacobson at Legal Insurrection and Josh Blackman at, at the Volokh Conspiracy, both of whom say focusing on Tyrion Steinbach is a mistake. She is a cog in a machine. The machine is the DEI industry. She is just doing right. the job <clears throat> for which she was hired, the logic of which extends to attacking anyone who visits campus who makes who supposedly makes people uncomfortable right and that the problem here is the di industry and she is just she is just the most blatant example but we don't usually example. see them. We hear right. people complain about them, but right. I, I'm noticing now more stories where people are actually capturing on film the absolute inanity of the things that they are proclaiming to these students right. who then eat it all up. The parents who pay the tuition should be looking at this, yeah. to be honest. Well, I, so, I, have, yeah. I have an ignorant uh, question here, uh, yeah. genuinely. Do these law schools still have debates? Um, and if like so, how? And stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because... If the if 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 there is no if the diversity of thought here, um, I, how would that even proceed? I mean, it wouldn't. I mean, wouldn't everything be a, a, a potential trigger? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't honestly know that an, that answer. I mean, but you know, if if well, moot court, right? The whole point of moot court, which is a classic law school tradition, is to compel people to make arguments with which they do not agree. You assign them a position that they have to they have to argue to its greatest extent because, of course, representing people, uh, you know, uh, before the bar will often involve you trying to figure out how to represent them best, not how to represent your own views best, and therefore you need to learn how to look for the best arguments on the other side. That, of course, could be very triggering and harmful and well, painful. not unless it's a conservative. I mean, when, you know, when Al Qaeda is up for trial, <laughs> the, these these students doing the protests will be sure to defend the right of Al Qaeda to have their opinions and to have due process of law. But if it was a conservative, of course, no, no they're causing great harm. Uh, I, I think one, I, I don't know the exact answer to, to Abe's question. I assume just based on my experience as an occasional speaker on campus, if it's someone who's not prominent coming on there and giving uh, opinions, a lot of the protesters don't. Ma care they don't you know they don't show up or they'll come in the you know they'll look at you with um you know meanly or something or come at come to i'm just going to the first person here they'll come to me afterward after the speech and say well you know what do you think about this what do you think about that 
But it's the real, they save these big events for a high profile speaker. So this is a federal circuit court judge, right? So they're going to target him. If a law professor who is associated with the Federalist Society came, it's maybe not going to be um, as controversial, If unless, of course, that law professor is known, you know, for criticism of the trans movement. I will say the, you know, uh, the business at Yale, which I referenced, which did happen last year, 2022, that was, uh, that was Yale law students sh- disrupting and shutting down a, f- a f- event on free speech. Yes. <laughs> so I, well, that's how they feel. I mean, institutionally, this question that you raised, John, like, should anyone hire anyone out who comes out of these law schools as a clerk or, you know, like, why would you put yourself at risk if they actually believe the stuff that they're that they're repeating at these sorts of protests? <laughs> I mean, if you look at Stanford, like, wh- why is the law school dean being so cautious? Like this is William Rehnquist graduated from Stanford Law School. Sandra Day O'Connor graduated from Stanford Law School. The institution itself has produced a conservative jurisprudence of which they should be proud. <laughs> but the idea that these institutions have so quickly capitulated to the to to a sense of shame i assume if anybody brought that up on campus as a speaker that would be booed by these students i don't understand their long the long-term health of these institutions depends on them ha- being a big tent particularly when it when it comes to the law and it's it's shocking to me and seems very near-term thinking unless the people in charge are fearful they're fearful of losing their own jobs if they go against this entrenched this bureaucracy triage it's triage. Yeah. What Jenny Martinez, the dean of the Stanford Law School, did was triage. She apologized to Judge Duncan. She, you know, she this happened. Then she sort of figured this mealy mouth thing about how we're going to look into it. And then she sort of apologized to him in a kind of dim way. He, interestingly enough, has not gone silent into that good night. He's giving interviews and going on things. And what he's saying is, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. It's every law school student at Stanford, who who has heterod- has opinions that are considered heterodox, who was at risk here and is being treated like dog blank, is what he said. Not me. Like I've got lifetime tenure. They can't cut, they can't do anything to me. It, this is an example that is being set for people who are not me and for people who are there. So and that I think is a very it's yeah. a very um forthright and noble and actually sort of like you know the anti-vain thing to have done to say to put it this way and to frame it this way but jenny martinez isn't afraid of the federalist society people she is afraid of her irredentist you know mob and that's that's and so she had to do something and then she got punished for it. You think she's going to go any further after having people wear black while she walks down the hall? A third of the school siding with the idea that it was okay to silence and abuse a visiting speaker and then have an official of the school associate herself with the abuse and, of the speaker. And again, like I, I want to point out, because this is there's a similar uh, in terms of it being related to, to transgender uh, radical ideology. This is also going on at Wellesley right now. The students have, have passed a referendum saying they should allow uh, 
trans women, uh, people born male to to enroll in the school. But the the interesting no, 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 thing, no, no. The, it's the, re- the opposite. It's, it's the, the opposite. opposite. Tra- sorry, trans, trans men. Trans men. Trans men. Yes, trans men. Yeah. Um, sorry. But they but let me point out that the reason they initially protested this federal judge is that this federal judge used what they claim were the wrong pronouns, misgendered someone in in his in his um, uh, ruling. And the person he misgendered was someone who was a pedophile, a sex offender who then transitioned uh, to female, which is something that very savvy male prisoners have figured out they can do because that sends them to a women's prison where in California they can rape the female inmates with abandon and they can also avoid being uh, put in perhaps far more uh, physically dangerous situations themselves in a male prison. So all he did is 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 describe this man by the pronouns you would describe a man who was a sexual offender, a pedophile. And that's who they're defending. They are defending. So that's that's the weird corner this gets them backed into when they attack someone for this. It was over pronouns. I want to go back to my original point, which is like what to do with Stanford Law School if, you know, in the larger context of America, because I think it's one of the top five law schools in the country or the top 10 or who knows in terms of its rating and ranking, uh, anyone within the ambit of my voice, you better be damn careful about about giving anyone who has is currently at Stanford Law School a job. Any law, I mean, there are a lot of lawyers, a lot of people work at law firms. I mean, we know we've seen in media what has happened when media organizations promiscuously hire people who have demonstrated beforehand any lack of loyalty or fealty to their employee, any belief that they have a responsibility toward the good working order of their employer, the person who is paying them, any sense of fealty to the, to the vitality of the organization and the fact that it's very bad to air your dirty laundry outside the organization, um, even if you have uh, difficulties or problems with it, and the fact that you don't run the place. You're just a, you're just an employee of the place, and it's not run for your benefit. Um, and we've seen time and again how there have been these internal revolts, these fights inside and all of that, including at nonprofit organizations, not just you know the ACLU, all these other places. And good luck to you. If you, you know, do not hire these people, it's not safe. It's not safe for you that whatever it is you think you're going to get by hiring them is going, you know, you are, you are taking on risk. And if there aren't consequences for these behaviors, and these are, of course, people who are well over the age of 21 now. Used to be people went directly to law school from from undergraduate. Now I think it's like 50%. So these could be people who are 24, 25, 26 years old. They got no excuse. They think they're doing something great. So good luck to you if you want to associate yourself with them. Cauterize the wound. Do not go there and see if the if the uh, career consequences for this kind of behavior at the professional school level may temper the rage and enthusiasm of people at these schools and indeed the admissions officers themselves who are letting them in when much of their probable uh, undergraduate careers might have been in being activists on these matters then. Well, and if any profession should be against the heckler's veto, it should be the legal profession. This 
one would think. But no, I think you're right, John. I mean, you reimpose, uh, well, you reestablish deterrence by imposing costs, and so many of these students, there's no cost for this behavior. In fact, there are rewards for it, and so the clerk ban that Judge Ho um, advocated in response to the um, Yale uh, episode. Uh, seems like a potential uh, uh, approach uh, uh, to to reimpose costs and to tell students that this type of behavior won't be tolerated because it's not coming from within the institution. It's not coming from within the institutions themselves until deans and until until the bureaucracy, which may be a fool's errand to wish for, says to students that your job here is to one learn uh, and two listen uh and you know th- they're going to continue this type of behavior so many of institu- so many liberal institutions i think have cultivated this type of um you know fascism from the sense that well you're here we're here for you we're we want to listen to you we want you know what are what your your opinion counts no it doesn't <laughs> when did this when did this idea that 20 year old opinions counted come into fashion. Can I help you? Can I help explain that to you? Okay. Until the 1970s, it didn't cost that much to go to school. Now, undergraduate and graduate, you're talking, you know, at at, at major institutions, depending on what kind of financial aid you get, anywhere between $30,000 and $80,000 a year. And that turns students into customers. Right. And the customers need to be supported uh, they think that they have a they they don't act as though they have an inexhaustible well of people who are willing to pay full freight and 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 they must know better. And so the entire relationship, aside from what happened in the 60s with students taking over and sort of showing the liberal hollowness at the heart of these institutions, there is also the simple fact that they want to provide good food and they building fancy dorms and they're doing this and they're and they are treating the uh, you know, student populace at 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 all of these schools as though they are, um, you know, going to white going to the White Lotus, not like they're going, you know, to a, a monastery, you know, like in Love's Labor's Lost, where they're going to just study twenty one hours a day and try to learn the secrets of the universe. That's not what that's not what academic institutions are offering. I, I agree, and, but but somehow that's also carried over into professional institutions i mean the nonprofits that you mentioned or the new york times right i mean right the same mentality i think is responsible for the controversy that christine writes about in the new issue this i mean i think finally the times is beginning to shift and the leadership and the veteran reporters are starting to say calm down guys get on with it you know we have we have an actual role here as an institution and that is to cover the news as objectively as possible uh, admittedly with their own biases um but uh that somehow that this mentality is what needs to be combated you know i mean it's it's um and it i think it's it's incumbent on the people in authority within these institutions to do it themselves yeah because well, no one's yeah. going to do that for yeah. them 
People, everyone should read, I think um, FIRE, one of the free speech groups has posted the transcript of the of what the DEI uh, lady at Stanford, when she was going back and forth with Duncan during the, that interaction, everyone should read that. Over and over, she she claims to stand for free speech. She claims to welcome him as as to the campus as a place where free speech and debate can happen. And then she proceeds to absolutely undermine the principle of free speech by over and over again asking, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, it's like, or it's just... Just yeah. like, is the juice worth the squeeze? I mean, Duncan, of course, several times, it's like, what does that even mean? Which is what I thought when I first read the transcript. But she is laying out in a very kind of crude form the principle. And her answer would be no, because it, if this hurts a few people's feelings, it's not worth talking about. That and we is know the it's not even hurting arguing. their feelings. Ultimately, this is the most giving disingenuous the power discussion. Is power. It's yeah. giving them power over others, and that is what they enjoy having. Well, the juice is always worth the squeeze on the commentary podcast. <laughs> okay, like, what a weird... We'll yeah, be squeezing our, the no. juice again no, no. tomorrow. <laughs> I've introduced tomorrow. a horrible new catchphrase. I'm sorry. While we prove that the juice is worth the <laughs> Our squeeze. industrial strength juicer here at the commentary so, podcast. For Abe, for Abe, Christine, and Madam John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.